Happy birthday, Santelli. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Steve Grasso, Brian Kelly, Bono and Eisen, and Jeff Mills. Tonight on Fast, trouble in the charts. Why chartmaster Carter Worth says there is more pain ahead following this down week on Wall Street. Plus, tonight's big number, 12 million. That's 12 million reasons why the U.S. consumer is in a world of pain. And later, EV maker Fisker topping the tape in its big debut. Why this could give new energy to one beaten down part of the market. But we start off with another major sell-off on Wall Street. Stocks tumbling today with big tech leading the losses. The S&P falling more than a percent to cap off its worst week since March. But that's not the only story that played out in the market this week. Check out what happened to bonds. For the week, the yield on the 10-year rose even as stocks plunged. Our friends over at Bespoke Investments say that's only happened 17 times before, going all the way back to 1962. So, Brian Kelly, what does this tell you about the market? Uh, well, it tells me we're in for some tough sledding, a lot of turbulence. So what's really interesting about the fact that bonds and stocks kind of did what they sh did different things than we should have done, there's a lot of people in this market, they, the so-called risk parity funds, that use that balance, you know, when stocks are down, bonds are supposed to be up, they use that as part of portfolio. And when things get out of whack like they did today, they have to rebalance and that can exacerbate the volatility. We saw a lot of that in March. To me, this market feels an awful lot like end of February, beginning of March. We have a ton of uncertainty coming up. And even, you know, gold didn't do well, bonds didn't do well. And the only asset class that was up today was mighty old Bitcoin. And that is the only thing that seems to be a safe haven. Yeah. Jeff knows what you make of that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, and we talk about safe havens. I mean, first of all, when I think about safe havens, it's not necessarily negative correlation, right? I mean, the ag was only down 27 basis points. Healthcare outperformed, utilities outperformed. So in a lot of cases, it was the usual suspects there. Um, but I do think tech not being a safe haven is interesting, and I think that speaks to the statistic we just laid out in terms of the market being down and rates being up. And I think we've been in this weird market where technology has been more of a safe haven trade. It hasn't been the cyclical things are getting better trade. So if you believe rates are rising because growth expectations are going up or people expect this cyclicality, then you get a sell-off in technology. That kind of makes sense, right? People are selling that. Expectations were high. Those two things actually make sense uh, given the, the, the backdrop of this market. So I think partially that, that's to explain the move. I don't know whether it's because it's Friday, but I think I'm generally in a good mood today. And I, I think that we actually might be closer to the end of this selling than the beginning. You know, if I think about bond yields kind of holding in there, credit's been contained, copper outperforming gold, EM outperforming. So just as a barometer of risk taking, I think we're still in a reasonable spot here. Jeff Mills is walking on the sunny side of the street today, um, Steve Grossley, because he also posited the, the theory that, that yields are rising because economic growth looks better. Yes, historically that has been the correlation, but is that actually happening in your view? Because you are actually, Steve, positioned for that scenario. Yes. I, I, so for me, I think the, the biggest thing is that, that we, they've made or the investors have made the crowding into the 10-year and into these quote-unquote safe havens uh, so barbaric that the unwind is going to be terrible for the, for the investor because everyone crowded into tech. Everyone crowded into bonds because bonds were thought uh, to be that yields were never going to go up again. What happens if we started off the show saying, is the 30-year bull market in bonds over? 
I think that would probably be uh, you know, really inflammatory to most people that are watching. But just think about this. The disparity between growth and value when you look over a long-term chart. Right now, value is mispriced 2x what it was back when the bubble popped in the, in the tech bubble. You could say tech stocks are not overvalued to the extent they were then, but the disparity between value and growth was, has never been what it is now. So I think we're in the, Brian said, we're starting off for some tough, uh, a tough road ahead. Jeff was definitely more constructive. I don't want to say that I am in the middle because I'm not. I'm even worse than Brian these days. I think that we are going to see an outperformance of value that we have not seen or do not remember in decades. Wow, that is quite a, a proclamation. Bonwin, where do you fall in the, in the spectrum of things? You know, I think, um, one, you need to keep in mind that it's, it's a month in, right? So you're going to see some rebalancing that you typically wouldn't see on your standard trading day. Another thing is, and I don't want to deep, dive too deep into the options here, but really we need to unpack some of the mechanics of what's trading. So the, the bond market tr trumps and outsizes the equity market. The option market outsizes the equity market as well. And what you have is we have dealers being that we've seen a ton of buying up uh, an option um, uh, over the course of the last several months. You have dealers that are typically going to be short downside puts, right? And what happens is when you start to get moves, like we've seen this week, down 3%, down 2.5%, and the, the vol of volatility, what happens is that those dealers have to then sell out of stocks to, to hedge their position. Some of it, I think a lot of the macroeconomic picture that the other guys have laid out definitely speaks to that. But I think there is that one point that we are missing, which is some of this is just mechanical. And when we get to a month in, I think that's, that's even highlighted even more so. So, Brian Kelly, I mean, you outlined also a mechanical sort of pressure on the market. Bonwin is outlining another sort of mechanical pressure uh, on the market. And, and so if you're an average investor, because it was mechanical, are you more apt to say, by the dip, and I hate to simplify it to that effect, but I mean, if it is mechanical and it's not fundamentally driven, shouldn't that make you feel better about being in the markets? Yeah, well, I mean, if that were the case, but I guess I, I didn't mean to imply that the entire move was because of the mechanical. The mechanical moves mm -hmm. tend to accelerate the underlying moves. Mm -hmm. So the fundamentals here is that we have an economy that probably is past its prime. Like, that's about as good as we can get. And to me, what the bond market is telling me fundamentally, there's two parts to bond yield. Bond yields can go up because the economy is going to get better and there's going to be inflation, or bond yields can go up because there's going to be defaults. Now, I'm not suggesting the U.S. is going to default, but we could be entering this insolvency phase. And when I look at the bank stocks, they have been trading like death, even though the yield curve has steepened. So that's further evidence that underlying these moves, the fundamentals underlying these moves, are relatively weak economic trends, which then can be accelerated by the mechanics. So that's an interesting couple of scenarios that would explain the rise uh, that we've seen in yields. Uh, and Jeff, that really gets to what can the Fed do at this point? Because the Fed can provide liquidity, but it can't solve the solvency issue. And so how do you explain your sort of more optimistic view of why bonds, bond yields are rising? Yeah, I, I do think that's very clear. The Fed probably can't do much more. Actually, certain people have come out, Evans as an example, and, and said as much. So, um, and to the fundamental point, I, I think Brian is, is correct in the sense that 
you know, everybody's talking about the macro, but if you look at the companies and how much they're getting punished when they miss earnings expectations, it's actually the largest that we've seen uh, in many years by a wide margin. The next day, those companies are underperforming by about 5%. Um, and then, obviously, technology, where the expectations were even higher, even if they're beating on both top and bottom line, they're underperforming. So I do think there's a fundamental component to this where expectations were a little bit too high. Mm. But I think as we move into next year, even if the Fed can't step in and do more, regardless of who wins the election, we're going to get some additional stimulus. And I think that gets us over the bridge between where, where we are now and a vaccine or some sort of better treatment where economic data can accelerate. And, and just from a mechanical standpoint, you know, I'm trying to look at the technicals here because there's so much to unpack. And we're at the point now where about 55 to 60 percent of stocks in the S&P are now making new 20-day lows. That can be a little bit early within the context of a longer-term uptrend, which is where we are right now, but it puts us in the ballpark typically uh, of a bottom. We're starting to see that put-call ratio rise a little bit, too. So we could certainly have a little bit more to give back. But, again, I do think we're closer to the end than the beginning of this thing. Let's check in with the chart master. Speaking of technicals, it was a rough week, uh, but the pain might not be over. Chartmaster says there could be more pain ahead. Cornerstone Macro's Carter Ward joins us on the fast line. Carter, what are you looking at? Sure, there's a ton of stuff to look at, but I mean, I think it's important to say before we look at a handful of charts, what we know is that as a risk-reward proposition, equities have, have been uh, nothing short of a disaster as it relates to a year-to-date performance, meaning the best we've ever been up is 10%, we've been down as much as 35 and all of that, and here we are, unch, which is to say equities and asset classes, at least as measured by the S&P, have done nothing and yet uh, treated investors to a great swoon and, of course, only to be recouped, and yet, all oh, for what? Underperforming gold and treasuries. A few charts. The first, uh, and I've, you have it here on your screen, what we know is, uh, for what it's worth, we have a well-defined break in trend. You see the trend line there, just uh, drawn on the March low, and it is also from a double-top formation. Uh, while these things are not uh, sacrosanct or perfect, they have a lot of uh, history behind them, and we, what we have is, of course, uh, that circumstance. Another chart, it's just looking at where we are now in relation to the pre-pandemic high. With the same double top, we're now, of course, below the level we were at the peak in February before things went haywire. Now, if you put the chart one and two together, chart three here is uh, what you would call sort of an ascending uh, wedge or triangle, and we are clearly sort of faltering, breaking below key levels. Next chart, drawdown. So what do we know? This drawdown in relation to the four others. There have been five drawdowns uh, year-to-date of greater than 7%, and you can see the numbers there. We had that initial drawdown of about 7, and then we had a second drawdown in the May period, about 6. Then we had an 8% drawdown in June. Of course, the biggest one so far was from the September peak, at 10 plus, and then here we are, this one about 8, 9. Is it likely to be contained here at yet another sort of 10 or less? I suspect not, given the breaks in trend in the charts that we've just seen. So the final table here, uh, this is how much lower were we to simply check off down 10%, down 12%, down 15 from the peak of September 2nd? And you know, a 20% decline, which is uh, no big deal in the history of markets, would take us as low as 2870. Uh, a 12% decline would be another 3.5%. You see the far right column from here, and that's where the 
150-day moving average comes into play. In any event, what we do know is uh, it's clearly uh, day-to-day under pressure, and there's no indication that stepping in here is going to be the right thing to do. Carter, thanks. We will see you on Options Action shortly. Uh, Steve Grosso, which levels do you like here? So I do it a a different way. We come up with the same answer. So I go back to the COVID low of 21.91, go to the the recent high of 35.88, and then you look back on a retracement level and you get to Carter's 28.89-ish is my level. That's close enough to him. And then you go a little bit steeper dive to 27.25. Those two levels, Melissa, are the 50% and the 618 retracement, that's normally where you get the bounce. So if you're looking for a bounce, that's where I would look for it. Sell-off for me hasn't been aggressive enough, and I think we keep buying the dips in technology, mm-hmm. and back in the tech bubble, we bought the dips until the technology stocks lost 90% of their value. I'm not saying that's what's gonna happen, but you, we've been rinse and repeat for too long. We have to see something a lot deeper. That's what I'm looking for. As someone who likes the tech trade, Bonoin, <laughs> do you think that buy the dip in tech uh, mentality is, is gone, should be gone? No, I don't, I don't think it should be gone. But I, I, I understand what he's saying. Like, I don't think you should step in, in front and, and try to catch a falling knife. With that said, these companies have still come up with strong earnings. Granted, they pulled back guidance. We didn't see what we wanted to see from the iPhone. But these have been momentum trades for quite some time, and I expect that to continue in the short term. You've got to see where other people are, are buying. All right. Coming up, 12 million reasons why you have every right to be concerned about the consumer. The shocking set on housing that you've got to hear. And later, Fisker flooring it in its public debut. Why this could be the new story to watch in the market. We'll explain with Back Money Returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. In this, if this week's market sell-off wasn't spooky enough for you, there's a new frightening stat creeping out of the housing market. Our Diana Olick joins us now with the details. Diana. Yeah, Melissa, even as jobs slowly come back and the housing market sets records for sales and prices, a huge swath of American consumers are still struggling to make their housing payments, about 12 million. That's how many are behind on their monthly mortgage or rent payments. Renters are struggling the most with more than 8 million behind. In addition, close to 6 million renters said they had no confidence at all, zero, that they could pay next month's rent, and that's according to the census. Renters who tend to be on the lower end of the pay scale have been disproportionately hard hit by the pandemic because they've seen more job losses. Now, other than an eviction moratorium that expires at the end of December and some state rental assistance programs, there has been no relief from the federal government for renters since the increased unemployment benefits expired. For homeowners, there are government and private sector mortgage bailout programs where borrowers can delay their payments for up to a year. The plans are offered, though, in three-month increments with possible extensions. Now, a report out today from Black Knight found the number of borrowers in those programs increased by 33,000 to just over 3 million last week, and that's after they had been improving. That is 5.7% of all active mortgages. Another half million are behind, but not in any bailout. The vast majority of borrowers are delaying their payments, have extended their terms at least once. So it's just not getting any better, Melissa. All right, Diana, thank you, Diana Olek. 
Um, this is a really interesting story that we wanted to bring to you guys, um, Brian Kelly, because this means that the numbers may not tell us the full story of how much in pain the consumers really are because they have this sort of moratorium protection from paying their rent. But it also tells you that someone is not getting paid along this chain. If rent is not being paid, landlords are in forbearance, banks are not getting their mortgage payments. So there's multiple ways to go yeah, here. That's, that's yeah, so this, this highlights the K-shaped recovery that we're in. Those people who own assets and stocks and already own their homes and have a job that they can work from home are okay. But those who can't and have been laid off, they have no way to do it. And as you pointed out, it becomes this daisy chain of payments. And I suspect that's why the banks haven't really rallied uh, as much with the steepening of the yield curve. It's great. You can make all kinds of money on an interest payment. But if you don't get any of the money back, that doesn't help you out. And I would suspect that that gets worse as we get into the winter and spring. It's why I think there's some turbulence coming. And it's also why stimulus was so critical. You needed to get that out there. Now we're probably looking at March for stimulus. That's going to just exacerbate this trend. Yeah. Bonawin, where's the trade in here? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you've got to differentiate between residential and commercial-backed mortgages here. I think that's really what it's going to boil down to. I expect the commercial side to be in better shape. They're going to be, as we've spoken many times, they're going to be larger, more um, more asset-backed, able to source liquidity. They're just going to be in a much better, stronger financial situation. The residential side, I think this is what really this speaks to. Those people, I expect that to be kind of a domino effect. Keep in mind that people's homes are typically their largest asset, now, if you're going to lose your home or you're going to have your credit damage because you're falling behind in payments, you are going to be struggling to get access to credit at the very time you need it because you're cash strapped. I think that's the way I'm looking at it, commercial versus residential. Yeah, quick thoughts, Jeff. I think the, the trade, if we're looking at where you might want to play here, mm -hmm. even given the statistics, I think the builders are still a very interesting place to be. You know, I think about trends that were already in place before COVID, but that have now been accelerated. And I think housing is one of those. And if you look at the pent-up demand in the younger demographic, I think it's like two and a half years before that gets filled. So the builders are the ones that are going to be there to ease that supply constraint. So I look at companies like DR Horton, Lennar at nine to 10 times forward earnings, and I still think there's a trade there. And I would hedge it with financials exposed to mortgages, because if you get rates rising, that trade works. If rates stay low, I think housing still works. All right. Still ahead, revs up EV maker Fisker soaring in its public debut. So is this the new energy trade? We'll debate that and later on options action. It's been one of the worst performing sectors this year. But is that about to change? Why banks could be the best bet right now? One of our traders makes the case. Fast money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Fisker topping the tape today. The EV maker soaring 13% in its public debut on the NYSE. But check out what happened to energy stocks this week. The XOP ETF fell nearly 10%. So EV maker up, big oil down. Is this the new story for the energy trade going forward? Grasso, what do you say? Yeah, so, I mean, if, if, uh, if Biden is winning in the polls and he said that during the debate he wanted to put an end to fossil fuels, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to do the math on that. So you're going to have uh, the, those normal stocks are going to fall off a cliff. And then look at solar. TAN, the ETF, is up 130% year to date. But, you know, obviously the election is not a done deal as of yet. And you could see all these trades 
unwind moving forward and you're going to get a, a, a lot of uh, volatility in the next three to four to five days until we figure out who's president. Yeah, Bono, and you had a great fast pitch, great meaning it worked out <laughs> on First Solar, um, which popped after its earnings this week. So what do you say about the overall trade, not just First Solar? Well, I think another thing to keep in mind is the, the whole ESG and impact investing, right? I think that only continues the momentum that you're seeing in terms of the secular trend away from fossil to renewables. And that was in place even through, um, you know, our current administration. So I, I don't mm -hmm. really see that abating anytime soon. Yeah. BK, you're ready to, get to say goodbye to big oil? Uh, well, I think we've been ready to say goodbye to big oil for a long time now. I mean, well, one, Saudi Arabia plugged the world by selling off uh, their, their oil reserves, not all of them, but obviously floating Saudi Aramco. And I think the ESG part of it is really big here because it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. And people generally scoff at self-fulfilling prophecy, but they're my favorite kinds because they just work. More people that say, hey, I want to be an ESG investor, the better they're going to work. So I, I, I still like uh, Bono's first solar trade. All right. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Bono in. Uh, Yum Brands. Uh, the restaurants have had a tough week. Low P ratio looking up to 21. Strong gross margins. Yum Brands. Jeff Nels. Caterpillar, it's down 8% this week, so I, I like buying it here. I think industrials as a whole probably do well under either administration, and Caterpillar specifically bounced really nicely off that 50-day support, so cat. Steve Grasso? Can't remember the last time this was my final trade. This is value. This is deep value. Larry Culp said that they're on track. GE, look for this thing for $10 sooner <laughs> rather than later. Brian Kelly. Uh, for me, or characteristically, I'm going to be a bit of a contrarian. I think you start buying some TLT, you buy bonds here. Too many people are on the other side of that, and BK always likes to run to the other side of the boat when everybody's on one side. Yes, you do. That does it for us here at Fast. Options Actions up next.